God, we're thankful this morning that we can gather together. Uh, we, are, we are thankful for the rain that you've been giving us. Even though uh, it seems like a lot, God, we know that we needed it. And even on this morning, as it's been in some ways uh, maybe even a, a deterrent or a distraction for some of us, God, you've, you've gathered your people together and you're ready to speak. And we're thankful for that. And God, as a church, we pray for churches around us all the time. Today, God, we want to lift up a church that's nowhere near us. But God, a church that you're at work in just the same. And today, we want to pray for Pastor Eric Narte, uh, who's pastoring the church in Accra, Ghana, the Praise Chapel of the Global Evangelist, Evangelical Church. And God, we pray that on that side of the globe, that your name would be made great that you would be made famous through him, Pastor Eric and his ministry and his family. God, through the body of Christ that gathers together in that location, that you would be exalted, you'd be lifted up, and that you would draw all men to yourself as a result. We're thankful for the churches that we partner with, thankful for churches all across the world that are gathering together as the universal church today to worship you, and to hear from you. And I pray that you would continue to do that for your name and for your fame and all the nations. And God, we, we thank you today, especially for mothers. As, as we celebrate mothers today, as we, we give them this one day in the whole year, God, we, we, we want to just confess that that's, that's nowhere near enough and it's nowhere near what they deserve. And God, I'm especially thankful for the, the mothers in this room that, that, that give their families, and, and even bigger than that, that give the world around them a picture of your love as they unconditionally love their children and unconditionally love and serve their families and sacrifice so much for the good of the family and for the good of their children. And God, I, I thank you that that reminds us of your love for us that's unconditional. It reminds us of your sacrifice that you sent your son to take our place. And God, I pray that today, in a very, very special and very significant and very direct way, that you would comfort and encourage all the mothers that are in this room. That you would remind them that, uh, that in the good and the bad of their parenting, that you're sovereign and you're in control and you're working through them. That you work because of them and because of how you wired them and you work sometimes in spite of them to accomplish your purposes through them. And God, bring them uh, encouragement today and bring them comfort and bring them peace and bring them some rest as we as husbands and we as sons and daughters as, as we serve them today. And God, we're thankful for that. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen. Happy Mother's Day. We, uh, we, we could never say enough about that and about the sacrifice that you guys make, and so we really appreciate you, and I uh, hope that you get spoiled today uh, in a very, very special and strategic way from your families. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, we're going to look at the story that happens in the last week of Jesus' life uh, on, in, in his ministry before the crucifixion and before the resurrection. 
And it's a, it's a pretty intense week as Jesus comes to Jerusalem and everything's escalating towards that point where they're going to turn him over and they're going to demand that he be crucified. And we're going to look at this, this story of Jesus when he goes into the temple and over, overturns the tables of the money changers and, and unseats the people that are selling pigeons for the sacrifices. And we're going we're gonna to kind of stop and look at the story a little bit today because I think it's one of those stories that we're familiar with. But most of the time, and, I, and I've been as guilty as anybody, we kind of look at that story and it's kind of a little, it's, it's different, right? It's not the Jesus that we're used to seeing in the scriptures. It's not the compassionate, uh, very patient, very loving, very welcoming of all people. It's not that Jesus in this story. It's, it's, a, it's a different version of him. It's him wearing angry eyes. And so we don't know exactly what to do with that. And so sometimes we kind of look at that story and like, oh yeah, I know the story when Jesus went and cleared the house and the temple and everything. That was... It's kind of weird, and we just kind of move on, because we don't, I don't, I don't know what, and so I, I think what we're going to do is stop and kind of look deeper at that story today to find out what Jesus is trying to communicate and what Jesus is trying to accomplish when he does that. And so the story's found in Mark chapter 11. It's actually found in all the Gospels. It's one of those um, stories that was significant that they all recorded this happening at some point. Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem, which They'd already been to Jerusalem, and we'll see that in just a second, but they were kind of pulling out of Jerusalem at night, staying in Bethany, probably with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus at their house. And so they came back into Jerusalem, verse 15, and he entered the temple, Jesus, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So just that one snapshot in this last week, this Passover week, as Jesus is headed towards the cross, there's just one little account where he goes into the temple and he clears house. And Like I said, I think sometimes we skip over the story because we don't really know exactly what's going on there. And I think one of the reasons we do that is because we put ourselves in the story. And we see this kind of response from ourselves all the time in different situations. That we get angry sometimes at stuff stuff that's going on and we lose it. And we kind of, it's very easy for us to fly off the handle and just react to something that's going wrong. And, and when we see Jesus doing this, it's really easy, even though it's, it's obviously not right, it's really easy to kind of see Jesus acting like we would act in that situation, and so we don't know how to handle that. We don't know how to handle Jesus that's like flying off the handle and just knocking over tables everywhere. And so we don't really stop and think about what he's trying to do. But what, what I think you see in this text is not a Jesus at all that's out of control and anger. Uh, if you really look at the text, you, you see someone that's very, very intentional. In fact, let's just talk about his life. That's who Jesus was. He doesn't react to things. He responds to things. And you guys know there's a difference there. Everything in his life and his ministry is intentional. It's designed to accomplish a specific purpose. Every single thing that he does, there's an intention behind it. There's a teaching behind it. There's a lesson behind it. Even though his three years of ministry could be described in some ways as one interruption after another. 
He was going here and somebody, uh, somebody grabbed the hem of his garment. There was an interruption. He was going here and a blind man's calling out to him. He was going here and somebody else interrupts him. Or uh, they're going across the, uh, to the other side of the lake and they get there and all the people had rushed over there. And so he was trying to get a retreat, but he, had, he saw the people had gathered and he had compassion on them, began to feed them, began to uh, heal them and to teach them. There was like, like one interruption after another and Jesus had to respond to those different interruptions. But every time he does that, it's strategic. Every time he does that, it's bigger than what we would do. It's, it's got purpose behind it. And so one of the things that we know about Jesus is he doesn't just react to things. He's always got intention behind everything that he does. And it's interesting if you really kind of look at this passage, if you look back when he first came into Jerusalem to start this whole process, if you remember, we call that Palm Sunday. So he came in riding on the donkey colt, and as he was riding in, the people were laying palm branches down, and they're shouting, Hosanna, save us, right? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were worshiping him as he came into the city, and then less than a week later, they're demanding that he be crucified. But that whole process of coming to the city, that, that parade, if you will, like that took pretty much a big portion of that day. And in verse 11, if you look back up just a little bit in Mark chapter 11, verse 11, it says at the end of that time when he paraded through and rode the donkey colt, it says he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he went into the temple that first day. He looked around and saw what was going on, which you can just assume that he saw this going on, all the money changers, all the people selling pigeons, all that. He saw that going on, but it was really, really late in the day, and so he backed out of the temple, and he went back to Bethany to spend the night. And then what we have here is the next day, on the following day, he's going into Jerusalem, he curses the fig tree, and then he gets to Jerusalem, he goes in the temple, and the first thing he does is he starts knocking over tables. So this isn't a reaction. This is something he saw yesterday that was going on that he's decided to address today. This is not him just losing it and going off the handle. He's coming in with a, with a purpose in mind. I'm going to knock over some tables because I'm going to teach something. And it actually says that in verse 17. And he was teaching them. While he's knocking over tables, while he's overturning seats of people that sell pigeons, and he's driving them out, and he's telling people, you can't carry anything through here. He's like, hey, stop, put it, put it down. While he's doing that, he's teaching. So this is not the picture of someone that's just out of control with rage, just throwing tables around. He's knocking over tables, and as he's doing that, he's teaching. So much so that everybody heard him, even the chief priests and the scribes. They heard him, and what he was teaching and what he was doing made them even more want to destroy him and kill him. And so what is he teaching? What is he trying to communicate? What is he telling us that we can maybe grab a hold of and learn for right here and right now, and even as we kind of talk about this vision for a, a, a church plant, what can we learn from that? That's, that's kind of what we want to look at today, and I, I think that when you see this story and you stop and look at it, I think you see three layers to one problem that Jesus was addressing, because before we can figure out what this means for us now, we have, to, we have to really figure out what it meant right then. Like, why was Jesus overturning those tables and driving those people out and teaching this particular thing? What problem was he addressing on that moment at that time? And it's really one problem with three layers. Uh, and, and so I want us to, to look at that and make sure we understand that, and that will help us figure out what Jesus is really teaching us. The first layer of that problem is that what was going on here... Uh, with the, the money changers and the people selling the pigeons and everything, it was kind of creating a barrier 
that was keeping people from being able to worship. That, that there was this, this hoop that people had to jump through in order to worship God. And, 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 and there's, there's a barrier there that this, these money changers had created. The, the reason why you say that is because Jesus comes in and he says, Hey, isn't it written that my house should be called a house of prayer? It's supposed to be a place where you can come and commune with God. This is a sacred place. The temple represents the presence of God with his people. And, and so Jesus is basically saying this is supposed to be a place of solitude. You guys heard Scott talk about that a couple of weeks ago, about the need for solitude. Well, the temple is one of those places where you should be able to come in. You should be able to find a place there to worship God, to, to pray to God, to pour out your heart to God, to have intimacy with your creator in this moment, in this place. And when you walk in, all you see is money changers. All you see is people selling things. You see a bunch of commotion. You see, see a bunch of distractions. You see all these barriers to worship. And Jesus says, no, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. This is supposed to be a place where you can commune with God. And so there was, a, there was a, something in the way. There was a distraction in the way that was keeping people from being able to really worship God. And what Jesus says is, it's supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've made it. A den of robbers, which gives us every indication that the people that were exchanging the money, they, they're probably charging too much for that. That there was a, there was a crooked exchange rate there. Um, people were coming in from all over for the Passover week. This was like their annual pilgrimage. They're coming to make their sacrifice. And when they came in, they had to pay a temple tax. That was a part of the law. It was part of the, uh, the thing that they were supposed to do. And, and a lot of those people had different currency. They used Roman currency. So they had to come in and they had to pay the temple tax with the proper currency. And so the money changers were there to provide a service. that You need to exchange your money so you can pay the temple tax in the proper way. And every indication, because Jesus says you made it a den of robbers, is that they were not being fair with the exchange rate. They were taking advantage of the fact that people didn't have that currency. And this was the last stop before they could actually pay that tax. That maybe the animals that people were buying for sacrifice were inflated in value, that they were ripping people off that needed to make the sacrifice, that people came from a long, long way away to make their sacrifice, and so they didn't want to travel with an animal, so they needed to purchase an animal when they got there. Or maybe people lived in the city of Jerusalem, they just didn't have space to raise their own animals, so they needed that animal to make the sacrifice. But Jesus says, you've taken this and made it into a den of robbers, that maybe they're charging more than they should or they could. And so what they've done is they've, they've not just created a distraction for everybody to worship, they've specifically gotten the way of Gentiles being able to worship. If you were the Ethiopian in chapter 8, you know the story of the Ethiopian eunuch that comes from Ethiopia to worship, the only place that he can worship is in the court of the Gentiles. He can't go any further than that. And, and in this place, there's all this stuff going on, which is, which is probably worth us talking about what you have in your mind, like the picture that you have of the distractions that are going on, because most of my life, when I read this story, when I saw this story, I, I kind of had this picture that here's this huge court of the Gentiles, and over there in the corner, probably, there's a few tables where they're changing money, and maybe there's a few sheep pens and some uh, pen, cages for pigeons where they're changing that, and Jesus wants, he goes over there and turns over those tables. But I really don't think that's what was going on. In fact, the historians tell us that during the Passover week, which is during this time that Jesus is addressing this, over 3,000 sheep were sold every day during that week in this area. 3,000 sheep, not, not counting pigeons, 
uh, counting all the money that's being changed. And so if you get this picture in your mind, this is not a few tables sitting over there on the side. This is kind of the whole court of the Gentiles. There's all these different people in there competing, trying to get you to buy their pigeons or buy their lambs. 3,000 per day. And so the, the idea that this might be just a couple tables over there on the side, that, that they're changing money and Jesus turns over those tables, that, that idea need, kind of needs to go away and we need to really see this for what it is. And for me, that helps me to, I mean, when I think of this and I think of the amount of distraction that was going on in there, here's what I think of. I think of First Mondays. Now <laughs> get that picture in your head. Of, and some of you think, well, First Mondays, that's a place of worship. And it's okay, you're wrong, but it's okay. Because it's a horrible place, it really is. But that's, that's kind of what this probably looked like when you walk in. There's probably tables everywhere, people trying to sell you stuff that you don't need, right? Which is... That's, I think, on the brochure for First Mondays. That's what it is. And that's just everywhere you look, there will be all kinds of things going on there. And I've, I've been to First Mondays one time. My wife took me one time, and it was raining that day. And so nobody left. Everybody just went under the pavilions. And you couldn't even see the tables. You're just like, oh, this is great. I don't need that stuff. I sure don't need that. And you're just trying to move around. You're just trying to survive, basically. And that's kind of what, what this is. And and I know some of you are like, you really do like First Mondays, and that's fine if you do. And I, I don't like shopping anyway. Like, I, I just don't like to shop. It gives me a headache to shop. Now, I go shopping with my wife because the Bible says I'm supposed to love her like Christ loves the church, and he laid down his life for her. And so I lay down my life on occasion and go shopping with my wife. But I will not go back to Canton with her because, hey, I'm not Jesus, all right? I'm, I'm not... I'm, I'm trying, but I'm, we all know I'm not even close, so I'm not going back there. But that's kind of what this probably looked like with just animals everywhere and tables everywhere. Come over here. We got a different exchange rate. Come over here. And a Gentile who's come from who knows where, and he wants to come and worship the, the one true and living God. When he walked in, there's no place to worship. There's no place for this to be a house of prayer in that moment. It's just one distraction after another. There's a hindrance to the Gentiles being able to worship. And here's what's really interesting is when Jesus says what he says here, he's quoting from the book of Isaiah. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 56. And, and we need to see the full quote because we, we really need to see what he's talking about and why this was so important that the Gentiles have a place to worship. So if you turn to Isaiah chapter 56, and as Isaiah's prophesying, Speaking for the Lord, verse 6 and 7, he says, And the foreigners, the non-Jews, right, the Gentiles, foreigners, people from another nation, and foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, who hear about the Lord and decide to follow him in some way, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples or all the nations. That's what Jesus is quoting. He's quoting from Isaiah 56, where basically Isaiah, God speaking through Isaiah says, hey, foreigners are going to come. This is going to get bigger than Israel, and the other nations, people from other nations are going to come, and they're going to want to worship here too. 
And they're going to make sacrifices. And, and what he's saying is God is saying, I will accept their sacrifices as well. The foreigners are allowed to come. They're welcome to come and worship me at this place, at this temple. And when they make sacrifices, even though they're not Israelites, even though they're not Jews, I'm going to accept their sacrifices and their burnt offerings. That's what Jesus is quoting. This is supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. And instead, there's this distraction. There's a barrier where they have to pay too much for their sacrificial animal and, and their, their money exchange for the temple tax. They have to do all these things. And then they can't even find any place of solitude in that area because of all the stuff that's going on. It's a hindrance to the Gentiles. And Jesus deals with that. And he deals with it severely, like turning over tables, money rolling everywhere. And he removes these people from the temple, drives them out of the temple, because this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. That's layer number two. And the same problem, but really a, a third layer, and kind of, it, it kind of wraps all this up, is what was happening here was just this whole process and this whole system was just, had become really ritualistic worship. That what was going on was just enabling uh, perpetuating a ritualistic obligation type of worship that people knew that this one time a year, what we have to do is we have to come to Jerusalem and we have to exchange our money and we have to make the temple tax. And hopefully if we make the temple tax, then God will bless us and make our crops grow this year. This is just something we have to do. And we do this once, once every so often. Once a year we come and do this. We have to come this once a year, and we have to make this sacrifice so that maybe, just maybe, because of that sacrifice, God will look, with us, look upon us with favor, and he will not hold our sins against us. Maybe this sacrifice will cover over those sins for another year and give us another year of being able to live with the favor of God. And so it becomes something that they did to kind of please God or to earn God's acceptance or earn his favor and become something that they just did because they had to and it was part of what everybody did that's why thousands of people are coming in to do this and they lost the heart of the worship of it and so Jesus is kind of making a statement by overturning the tables that there's a new kingdom that's coming He's making a statement that this ritualistic obligation style worship that that's it's no longer necessary because of what Jesus is about to do. He's about to lay down his life as the ultimate sacrifice. By, by overturning the tables and running these people out, he's almost making sure we start to see that the blood of bulls and goats will never cover over our sins, but there's a sacrifice coming that Jesus is going to die on that cross, and his blood is going to be sufficient to appease the wrath of a holy God and take that wrath away from us forever. Jesus is announcing the kingdom is coming. They asked him what he's up to, and he said, here's what I'm up to. I'm going to destroy this temple, and in three days, I'm going, to, I'm going to build it back. I'm going to raise it up again. And they thought he was talking about the building, but he was talking about him. He was the representation of God's presence because he was God. He was God's presence in the world, not just this place that they thought that God might be, but God in the flesh laying down his life and then coming back to life again three days later. He's declaring a new reality he's declaring a new kingdom is here and because of that the sacrificial system that never really really got there it was just pointing the way to the day when Jesus would come it's no longer necessary and so he's ending this ritualistic worship he's he's 
moving away the people away from this worship by obligation or this worship because maybe this will give us what we need back from God that if we do this God will do something we're earning his favor and he's announcing there's a new thing coming and so when you see Jesus overturn the tables and he's teaching something in that moment I think that that's the specific thing that he's teaching. This, these three layers of this problem, that there was a barrier, help, it was hindering people from being able to worship. It was providing this huge barrier for Gentiles where they couldn't really even find a place to worship. And it was just perpetuating a ritualistic worship, that they just did that because they were supposed to, or they did that because they were hoping to earn something back from God. That's the problem that Jesus was addressing in that day, in that time. Um, and, and he wants to make sure that they see that that's not the way that they're going to go in the future. But here's what's, what's really interesting to me about the story is that as Jesus is addressing that specific problem, it says he's teaching the people while he's doing it. And he's teaching them from Isaiah. But in a, in a bigger sense, what he's doing that day is teaching all of us. Because Jesus taught that way. He taught with his words. He sat down and people were astonished at the authority of his teaching, but he also taught by his actions. What he did really mattered. And so the fact that he went to such an extreme to knock over tables, to drive out, these people are sitting there and he's knocking their seats over and he's, nobody carrying anything through. He's bringing this whole temple operation to a halt. The drastic measure of it means he's really trying to teach us all something. And what I see in the story is that what he's doing is teaching us that everything that he was taking care of that day, that he came to take care of in a big sense. Let me, let me explain. Jesus removed the barriers that there were that day for people to worship. I'm going to get rid of these money changers. I'm going to get rid of this stuff. You've made it a dinner robbers. I'm getting you out of here. But what Jesus is doing that day is announcing that he's come to remove all the barriers permanently. That he's, that's what he's doing. That this, this little story, this one glimpse of what he did one day during this week of this three years of his ministry is a picture of the gospel that Jesus came to remove all the barriers. That he came to completely take away the barriers that exist between us and God. The Bible says that we've created a barrier between us and God, that barrier is created by our sin, that we've removed ourselves from him, that we've separated ourselves from him, that there's a, a chasm, maybe that's the barrier, that we can't get across, or maybe there's this huge wall that we've, we've built because of our sin and our rebellion, and we can't get across that wall, we can't get over on the other side of that chasm because we've separated ourselves from God. And Jesus has come to remove those barriers. That as he comes into the temple, as he comes to lay his life down, take our place on that cross, what he's doing is he's taking away all the barriers and bringing us back to where we can be with God. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. That's all of us before we found Christ. Separated, alienated, no hope in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's, that's the gospel. Jesus is 
giving us a picture of the gospel as he's driving these people out of the temple, that he's come to take the barriers and remove them, that we were all separated from God and we were cut off from him and we were far away from him. But now because of Jesus and what Jesus did, we've been brought near to God. We can have a relationship with him. That apart from Christ, we were, we were God's enemies. The Bible says that we were completely in a, a war with him. We had fired the first shot. We declared our uh, allegiance to ourselves and apart from him, and we were his enemies. And God's ready to treat us as his enemies except for the fact that Christ comes. And now because of what Christ did, God doesn't see us as his enemies anymore. Now he calls us his friends. That we were alienated, cut off, separated. We had no hope. We, were, we didn't belong to God we, didn't, we were not a people at all. But now because of Christ, we're sons and daughters of the King. We're children of God because of what Jesus Christ did. Jesus came to remove all the barriers and to welcome us into God's presence, to relationship with him and to intimacy with him. Jesus removes the barriers. That's what he did, ultimately. Big picture for all of us. He also welcomes all the nations. That this is what Jesus is always, God has always been about, is all the nations coming to the place where they can worship and have access to the same God. This wasn't ever just for Israel and his people. This was for God's blessing on Israel to be seen by all the nations and for them to come and understand that. I mean, Jesus quoted Isaiah 56. You can go further back to the, than that in, in the history of God's people and look at 1 Kings chapter 8. In 1 Kings chapter 8, here's what's going on. They just finally finished building this temple. Solomon's leading that project, and they built the temple. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon prays a prayer of dedication over the temple. Now, the temple that they built was unbelievable. It's, it's hard to even describe how magnificent of a structure that they, they, they were able to build here. I mean, it was just massive. It was ornate. It, was, it stood out among all the nations. There was this one temple with these huge stones and this, this huge structure. And if there was ever a day for the people of Israel to gather together and kind of have pride in who they were as a people, maybe even be ethnocentric. If there's ever a day or a reason for that, this would be the day. Look at how God has blessed Israel. Look at his favor on Israel. Look at what we've done because of God's blessing on our life that we built this structure. If there's ever a day to be all about Israel, it was that day. But in the middle of his prayer of a dedication on that temple, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41 through 43, Solomon prays these words about the temple. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they, the foreigners, shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. People from other countries are going to hear how great God is because of this temple. Because of what you've done for your people, people are going to hear. And when a foreigner comes here, and when he comes and prays toward this house, here's what Solomon's asking God to do. He says this, hear in heaven, God. Hear them. Hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So the day they, they dedicated the temple to the Lord, 
they recognized that other people besides the people of Israel were going to come here. And Solomon says, when the foreigner comes inside this place into this court of the Gentiles and he prays a prayer, God, listen to him, hear him, answer his prayer. Why? So that your name will be made great among the nations. So that God, everyone in the, all the nations, the whole world will see how great you are and they will be attracted to you. So answer the prayer of the foreigner. So God's always been about this and Jesus is basically, he's, he's making a point to overturn tables and, and do this huge thing this day because he wants to, everyone to know the nations are welcome here. That this gospel message, Jesus says, will be preached in all the nations. That it's for everyone, no matter what their background, no matter what their nationality, no matter what, where they come from, no matter what demographic they represent, this gospel message is for all. And so that, and that it's very, very clear to us that if we're going to be about what Jesus is about, then we have to be welcoming to the nations. I mean, there's no way to get around that. That everyone, all the nations should be able to be welcome in our midst because that's what Jesus has come to do. He's come to open this wide up and make sure everybody sees that God's plan has always been for everyone to come. And so sometimes our churches are put in places where the nations are around us and we need to be a church that's uh, really open to that and really understanding that. And sometimes the church is maybe not in that kind of a strategic place and so then we engage in what God is doing on other places. But as the church embraces what God has called us to do, and becomes the presence of God in the world. We join Jesus in welcoming the nations and, pre and presenting this gospel as the only hope to the world so that they can be brought near and they can be restored to him as well. And Jesus removes all barriers with his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He welcomes all nations. This is for everyone. And then he calls us to true worship. That day he was... Announcing the end, like this, this sacrificial system you have, it was never sufficient, but I'm going to lay down my life. And this obligation that you have in worship, this ritualistic worship, that, that's, that's not what this is all about. And he calls us instead to true worship. He, he calls us to worship that he says is in spirit and in truth. That that's the kind of worship that he's making sure it's, it's clear to everyone by this action this day that, no, you're going to worship in a different way. You're going to worship in spirit, and you're going to worship in truth. One of the things that Jesus said about the people this day was that their lips honored him, but their hearts were far away from him. These people, they honor me with their lips. They do the, the motion of worship. They come make their sacrifices. They come pay their temple taxes, but Man, their hearts are not into it. It's just a ritual. It's just an obligation for them. And Jesus is calling us beyond that. He's calling us far away from that, far away from the ritual to a place where we truly worship him. And what that means for us is, I mean, there's a lot of things we could say there, but this one specific thing is it means that our worship is going to be because we need to worship, not because God needs us to worship. There was some sense that the people did that because, well, this is what God wants us to do. This is what God needs us to do. And if I do this, maybe God will give me this back in return. And when Jesus calls us to true worship, when he lays down his life for us, what he's showing us is that he doesn't need us to worship him. We desperately need to worship. And Paul says it this way in Acts chapter 17 as he's speaking on Mars Hill to the philosophers of Athens. And he's trying to explain to them who God is. In Acts chapter 17, verse 24, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, 
He's Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In Athens, they had temples everywhere to all these different gods, and they even had an altar to an unknown god, and Paul's trying to address that specific contextual issue there, and as he does that, he says, oh, and the god that I serve, he made the world. He doesn't live in temples made by human hands, and People don't serve him because he doesn't need anything. God doesn't need our worship. We need to worship him. Now, one expression of worship is what we've already done and what we're doing. This corporate gathering where we come together to worship God and we sing true things to him. And Clint led us beautifully in that. That's one expression of worship. But the the wider expression of worship that you see in the Bible is the spiritual act of worship of living our lives for him. It's really valuing him above everything else. It's treasuring God above all other treasures. It's pursuing God above every other pursuit in our lives. And what Jesus is calling us to is worship where we value and treasure him above everything else and we pursue him above all the other pursuits because we need that desperately. And one of the one of the great things about corporate worship, one of the great things about coming together today, it, it getting out in the rain and fighting all the elements and coming into the house of God to worship together, one of the great things is that it's a reminder, a constant reminder when we come and worship together corporately, when we have the word open before us and we're, we're taught from the word, it's a reminder that he's the treasure of all treasures. It's a reminder that he's more valuable than anything else. It's a reminder that we should pursue him because he's the only one worth pursuing. And we need that reminder at least weekly. Because without that reminder, without the corporate worship experience, without the corporate teaching of the Word of God, it's really easy for us to drift away from that and to start thinking that something over here is maybe more valuable than him. Some treasure over here is a greater treasure than what he offers me. There's something I could pursue that might give me what I'm really looking for that I don't think I'm really going to get from him. And so when we wander away from corporate worship, we forget really, really quickly. But we come back together on Sunday morning. We gather back together and we worship him. And it's a reminder, he's greater than all that. And we desperately need that. When we worship him, I mean, corporately, yes, but In our daily lives, when we worship him, when we value and treasure and pursue him above everything else, guess what? We find satisfaction in that. We find fulfillment in that that's not offered anywhere else in the world. We find purpose and meaning to life only when we're valuing and treasuring him above everything else and chasing after him. And so when God is worshipped, when God is lifted up, when God is exalted with our mouths and with our hearts and with our lives, we are satisfied. We find joy. We find fulfillment. We find contentment when God is worshipped like that. So that's, that's a reminder that we come to worship him not because he's some God up there that's needing us to sing songs to him, but we come to worship him because that's the only thing that makes sense of our lives. And it fulfills us, it satisfies us, it brings us satisfaction that we can't find anywhere else. And so we need that reminder. He's not served by human hands. He doesn't need anything. We need him. And our true worship looks like that. 
Looks like us understanding, I need to worship him. I need to worship him with my brothers and sisters because it reminds us all how great he is, how valuable he is, and I'm not going to chase anything else. And our worship, when we understand that, it becomes a response instead of an obligation. Instead of this ritual that we just go through and, oh, yeah, oh, it's Sunday, we got to go. They're going to be mad if I don't show up. Some, somebody, Scott's going to call me. It becomes the joy because it's a response. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says it this way. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in view of his mercy, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. So he says your spiritual act of worship is to be a living sacrifice, to lay your life down for him to chase after him above everything else, to value and treasure him above all the other valuable things and treasures of the world, to, to really pursue him. That's what spiritual worship looks like. And he says, do this in view of his mercy. With the gospel clearly in our view, what Jesus Christ does when he takes our places, he spares us the punishment that you and I deserve. That's mercy. We should be punished for our sin. Jesus took it instead. And so with that clearly in our view, Worship him in response to that. Not as an obligation, not as something that we just do because this is what we do, but because of what Jesus Christ did for us, because of this unbelievable sacrifice he made, we worship him. We gather together as the body of Christ to sing true things to him, to pour out our hearts to him collectively, to sit under the teaching of the word because he's that great and that valuable. And then on Thursday... We value and treasure and pursue him above everything else because of what he's done for us, because of the beauty of that, because of the picture of the gospel, the picture of Jesus on the cross, the, the, the view of mercy that that gives us on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, I can continue to value him and pursue him and treasure him above everything else. My worship is a response to his greatness. And that's what Jesus was teaching that day with his actions. That he's, he's conquered all the barriers. There are no barriers between us and God because Jesus Christ took it away. His death, his burial, and his resurrection, it's gone. We have access to God. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence, not because we're great, but because Jesus did it for us. And then it's for everyone. It's not just for us. It's for everyone, the, the, the community around us and all the nations. They all have that same access. He's the God of all the world. And then we get to worship him together, corporately, because of his greatness. And then we get to worship him daily when we're out in our mission fields in the world because of how great he is. And you know, that, that's, that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about this next step for us, is that from a distance, I've seen this church for the last 12 years become a church that represents these things, that this is a church that really gets the gospel and is gospel-centered in all the approach, everything. It's a church that is intentionally engaging God's work among all the nations. You, you have to look very far to see that in this church. 
And it's a church that values corporate worship because we want that reminder week in and week out. No fluff, no games, no nothing. Just, hey, give me the word to remind me how great Jesus is so that I can continue to worship him in response to him collectively as we sing, collectively as we're taught, and daily as we live this out. And I'm excited about the opportunity to be a part of this body as God prepares us to send us to, to make a, to plan a body that's like this. Those same values that Jesus was making sure we all saw. That he is the one to worship. He's the only one worthy of it. And we worship him with every fiber of our being. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that that truth would really sink in in this moment that we needed that reminder today of how great you are. That, that we needed to know and be reminded corporately together today that you're more valuable than everything else. That you're the treasure above all treasures. That you're the only thing in the world worth pursuing. And so, God, as we see how great you are today, I pray that our worship will be a response to that, not, not any hint of obligation or ritual today in our, our response, that we will worship you in spirit and truth because of this view of your mercy, because of this view of your greatness. That even as we enter into the time of the Lord's Supper together, that it would be a reminder, a clear reminder of your great sacrifice for us. And this time of worship will be exactly that, a response to your greatness together today that will bleed over into tomorrow and every other day this week. Thank you for being that amazing. And thank you for that picture. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. As we prepare to take the supper, I want to, uh, for us to consider this is no hoop that we jump through. It's not just a ritual. It's not anything we're doing to earn his favor. It's something that we're receiving and taking. And we can so easily make this supper into something that it's not. The Corinthians did. They made it into something to where they could come and get their bellies full. It was something beneficial for them in the dailiness and in the temporal walk. And it wasn't anything bigger than that. Even taking advantage of the wine that was served and not, not feeding anybody that needed food. And so it became something that it shouldn't have been for them. And so what I want us to do in these next few moments before we take this supper is to look inside your heart, examine your heart, you, you've all, we've all brought distractions in here with us. We've brought angst, some pain, some sorrow, marriage issues, money problems, name it. The list is long. We've all got money changers in our heart today. We've all got, we've all brought them with us. And what I want to ask you to do is to just flip the tables over in your heart right now. Just turn them over and let's drive them out. Right now, listen to what Paul said. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead of another and eats his own meal. 
You don't have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so for us, you may think that tomorrow morning is the beginning of your week. But for us, the next chapter in our faith walk begins now. Another reminder that we're driving out the distractions and our week starts at the starting point, the greatest starting point. And it's his body offered as the remedy for the greatest problem that we have, our sin, redeemed and covered. And his blood, a new promise that is true, a new promise that we can depend on in this next chapter this week. All the other problems, all the other distractions that we will walk into this week, that we will maybe even walk out of here with, they are filtered by this truth, and they are filtered by our starting point as a faith family, and that's that Jesus is the remedy for our real problem. And he has a promise for us that he will complete and he will finish and he will come back what he started in us. And that's where we start. This is not a hoop. This is not a ritual. This is our reality. This is real. It can be trusted. It can be enjoyed. And it is to be taken and received by those who believe and trust that Jesus, just like Lance just preached, is the only hope. We have been well equipped at this point with the word. And now our jumping off point and our starting point is to trust and rest, driving the money changers out of our heart and trust, trust and rest in his adequate body, adequate blood. Let's pass out the elements. Visiting with us this morning, we're glad that you came. I want to invite you to do a couple things. First of all, if you didn't or haven't filled out one of these cards for us, please do that. I promise you we will not um, come visit your home at some unannounced time or really at all unless you invite us to your home. Uh, but we want to try and get some information in front of you about who we are. You can also visit the uh, welcome table that's in the other building. Clay Petzold will be over there. Someone will be. Clay's got his hand waved. Uh, we'd like to send you out with a packet that has a little treat for you for lunch sometime this week. Um, I will say this about your visit. If you're visiting or if you're here for the first of a few times, and this is a reminder for those uh, who are part of us regularly, Hopefully what you hear from us from this pulpit predominantly is what you've heard this morning preaching Christ. Now, every church says they do that. Now, realize every church says they do that. And we have, the reason we pray for other churches in our community every Sunday morning when we gather or a church in Ghana this morning, for example, the reason we pray for other churches is not because they're all broken, and we're fixed, broken, get my English right, they're all broken and we're fixed. And we're going to pray for them until they, they get it all figured out. That's not the spirit. We serve in a complementary way with the other churches in our community. We are a complement to the focuses of their ministry, ministries. 
Now, what we do, though, what we intend to do every single Sunday, with rare occasion where we preach to a problem, we preach Jesus instead. You can preach to a problem and be God-glorifying and help some folks. That's not nothing. That is a lot. If you're talking about a marriage series or a money series or whatever series that you could do, you're preaching to a problem, which is not a bad thing. But what we intend to do instead, mostly, not exclusively, because we are occasions where we'll stop down on a problem, mostly we intend to preach Christ because we believe that's living water that you can drink to take back to that problem and shed a whole new light on it. Is it going to fix that problem? Not necessarily. That problem may just continue. But you'll have a whole new perspective. You'll have this nourishment that will not only sustain you just so you can endure it, but so that you can worship while you're in the middle of it. So that's why, man, if people say, I'll cross point all they ever do week after week is talk about Jesus. Exactly. That's all we got. We're one hit wonder. We're a one trick pony. That's all we've got. And I hope by God's grace and mercy, it's all we ever are. Because realize this, the way in, you may realize, hey, man, I heard Christ preached and it was my way into the faith. Well, the way into the faith is also the way on in the faith. Is Jesus. It's all we got. I'm glad we heard it this, this morning. I hope you hear it every Sunday. Let's stand and I'll dismiss you in prayer. And I want to pray specifically along the lines of the message that we heard this morning. God, what a marvelous, shocking, um, amazing age we live in. I'm ashamed at how Seldom I'm really overwhelmed with the shocking access that we have to you right now. We're born into an age where the courts, where the tables have not only been overturned and the money changers cleared, but the courts have been bulldozed and the, the path to you has been made straight and we can approach the throne of grace boldly because of what Christ has achieved. A bunch of Gentiles. What a marvelous age, Lord. I pray that that this morning was a big, a big gulp of living water. I pray that whatever problems we may deploy to right now, that they will be um, different. I pray we'll have a fuel and a nourishment and an endurance and even a joy and a peace that passes understanding as we step off into those things, enjoying our age, enjoying our access, enjoying our Savior, and enjoying our God. We love you so much. We trust you. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a great week.